0: The ugly truth about January 6th, 2021 is that there is hate and anger all around us. But when that hate is fueled by lies and disinformation, it can spawn violence. Another truth about January 6th, there was a bit of an intelligence failure leading up to it.
2: There were indications that... Um, These um, individuals and some of the formalized organizations were talking and planning months before uh, January 6th.
0: And where did much of that planning take place?
1: Social media has become so ubiquitous. It's like intravenously feeding misinformation into the national bloodstream.
0: This week on 880 In Depth, identifying and standing up to extremism in America. Welcome to 880 In-Depth, I'm Tim Scheldt. Domestic extremism is a serious threat facing our country today. That's the view of Molly Saltzku, a senior intelligence analyst for the Sufan Group and research fellow at the Sufan Center. The Sufan Center is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to the study of global and national security. You may recognize the name. It is named for its CEO, Ali Soufan, the former FBI agent who helped call out missing signs in the months leading up to 9-11. Molly Saltzgoog spoke to our
2: Peter Haskell.
3: What have we learned about how January 6th happened?
2: Well, Peter, I think we need to start with, you know, in one way for experts um, and analysts such as myself. When January 6 happened it was a shocking event but at the same time um, it was maybe not as surprising as as for the general public we had long um, our entity along with other expert entities and and some uh, people in the government had long been sounding the alarm of the threat um, that far-right extremists pose, extremism poses to the United States homeland and um, January 6th, hopefully served as a wake-up call um, to that. Um, but in terms of what we've learned since, we're still waiting for the special report uh, from Congress um, to see what really happened uh, that day. Um, but uh, many people have pointed to that there was an intelligence failure, uh, that there were indications that um, these um, individuals and in some of the formalized organizations were talking and planning months before uh, January 6 that they were going to um, travel to Washington DC and storm the Capitol and many have asked the question why how was this missed
3: um, you know it, we hear about some of these organized groups like the Proud Boys and others like it how much of this do you think was planned And how much of it was spontaneous where you've got these thousands of people who were in Washington and just joined the crowd?
2: Right, that is an incredibly hard question to answer, but we know that the formal organizations like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were planning, they were fundraising, they were coordinating amongst, between each other in their organization and between the organizations, at least a month before um and that gives you the idea that it, to some individuals who were there on the ground it was absolutely a planned action and you can see that in the way in the in the gear that they brought um some of it uh, you know resembling military style gear the way that they moved in formations to to enter the capital to break into the capital And uh, the way that they um, communicated during, before, during, and after um, the event um, of the storming of the
3: Capitol. You talk about this coordination and communication. How does that work? And what kind of role does social media play? I mean, do they use the phone? Do they email? How much is how much of these various uh, methods of communication?
2: No, that is an excellent question. So for the formalized organizations like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, they use a variety of different um, mediums to communicate, ranging from Facebook to more encrypted chat applications and forums. Um, and they formally fundraised to travel to Washington, D.C. and so forth. But you bring up the point of, of social media, and we've done many studies on the, what we would call the disinformation and extremism nexus. And there was a, you know, you cannot deny that there were people on the ground that day that were motivated by disinformation about the election. Um, that the election so, was so-called stolen. And that most of that communication and that disinformation and misinformation was, was fed to people over social media.
3: So what do we do about that, if anything? I mean, how do we counter this? Is there a legal strategy? Is there a public relations strategy? How do you deal with this?
2: Well, that's the million-dollar question, Peter, isn't it? <laughs> I think that there um I will try to keep my answer relatively short but because there's so many ways that you can tackle um, the the threat of domestic violence extremism that is facing our country today. Um, but I think at the bottom, of uh, like uh, the foundation of it, is that um, we are no longer dealing with, tw- say 20 years ago, we were dealing with um, violent extremists and terrorists outside of the United States trying to hurt us. And they were hierarchical, uh, formalized groups. Um, and those uh, tools that we used in the post 9-11 era are no longer applicable uh, because the, uh, some of these ideologies that are motivating people to commit acts of violence that are politically motivated are actually becoming more mainstream. So it's, we're not talking about the very fringe anymore. And the best approach to that is, you know, educational, uh, e- education measures, digital and media literacy education, um, and, um, strengthening again the, uh, faith and belief in our democracy and our institutions. And this is not going to happen overnight. This is now a generational um, task that lies ahead of us.
3: Before we move on to some of the things you talked about, I want to ask you one other thing about the, the insurrection. What do you see as the importance of punishing, prosecuting and punishing those involved?
2: Right. Um, so I believe uh, that more than 700 individuals have been charged with federal crimes related to the January 6th insurrection by the Department of Justice. And this is very important because accountability, when we talk about political violence and terrorism and other other manifestations of violent extremism, accountability is incredibly important for society to heal. So DOJ has done a tremendous job in sifting through all of the evidence and the materials Um, And and law enforcement, of course, as well, and and bringing indictments um, against uh, these over 700 individuals is a momentous task. But it's also important to note, and this has been a main criticism of uh, the efforts of DOJ, is that there's been complete lack of accountability for any politicians who in any way, shape, or form encouraged violence through their rhetoric that day, Um, and Actually, we saw yesterday that um, Secretary Mayorkas of DHS noted the very um, potent relationship between disinformation and violent extremism in this country, and he specifically mentioned that people in power and leadership, including politicians, are peddling disinformation that actually could lead to violence. And so we're, we're missing that accountability, Peter.
3: You have written about the fact that the insurrection could serve as a rallying cry for the violent right. How so?
2: Absolutely, we saw this immediately. Actually, on the day itself, as these people were, these insurrectionists were storming the Capitol I was watching in real time, you know, monitoring some of the most um, darkest corners of the internet. With a lot, where a lot of violent white supremacists and other violent far-right extremists are congregating on on an um, encrypted chat applications, and they were ecstatic they were um you know they were celebrating this attack um and these were not only far-right extremists and white supremacy extremists here based here in america but all over um europe and as far away as australia um, and uh, basically, um, they were talking about this as the beginning of what they hoped to be, you know, an overthrow of the democratic system and establishment of, of a much more um, authoritarian and, and perhaps for, in some extreme instances, a white ethno state. Um, so it, it was terrifying to watch, but this happened, you know, as the capital was uh, was. Stormed, and we have seen in our research since that um, it has indeed served as a rallying cry um, for for more ex- more and more extreme narratives to become mainstream.
3: One of the other things that came out from a report that you were involved in is this. Today, domestic terrorism poses the most acute and deadly terrorism threat to the United States. So two things. One, why is that? And what about foreign terrorism?
2: Right. Um, this is a great question that um, oftentimes when, when we mention this, we, we become challenged because most people, when you say terrorism, you think of Al-Qaeda or the so-called Islamic state or their ilk. Um, but actually, statistically, um you know, domestic violent extremism as we refer to it here in America, and within that umbrella specifically, um, far-right violent extremism, white supremacy extremism, and those types of, of, of extremism have actually killed um, more Americans um, since 9-11 on, here on U.S. soil than, say, Islamist extremism. And, and, and there's a statistic that have been put out by, for example, the ADL, and um, and uh, other uh, think tanks that are, are are gathering this information, and we have seen repeatedly that our government agencies have assessed this threat as the most acute and deadly terrorism threat to the United States: the threat of domestic violent extremists. Um, DHS has noted that in several of its th- assessment reports. The ODNI has noted that in its threat assessment report, and. Um, you know, Secretary Mayorkas um, of DHS and FBI Director Christopher Ray have also uh, noted that that during testimony in front of Congress. Um, so there is statistical and government assessment evidence underlying this
3: claim. It, it seems we can't talk about anything these days without talking about COVID. And I'm curious if if COVID and lockdowns and mandates and vaccines and all of these things did did they play into this far right extremism and, and if so, how?
2: No, absolutely. Um you could you could view COVID nineteen and the pandemic as 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 kind of a catalyst for increased um um, extremist activity. Um, and uh, here, if we focus here on the United States, for, for example, very, the very simple logic that a lot of people were isolated and alone and spent most of their time online um, for a tremendous amount of time during the pandemic. And we talked about this earlier in, in, in your program, how social media, um, a lot of the people who showed up at, at, at the Capitol on January 6th, were actually motivated by disinformation that they found on social media. And the truth is that today, most users are only a couple of clicks away from potentially radicalizing um, materials online. And it's very easy to go into that rabbit hole that is promoted by algorithms um, and, and clickbait, frankly.
3: We've, we've seen what happened in Washington And we've also seen what can happen at state capitals, most notably in Michigan, heavily armed militia people and others in the state capitals. So I'm curious, are state capitals at risk and or what do you see as perhaps the next target or kind of target?
2: The short answer is our democracy, Peter. Um, it's terrifying to say, but but what the domestic violent extremism threat um, it does pose a lethal, um, you know, threat to to Americans and, and elected officials and so forth in terms of attacks committed and lives lost. Uh, we should we shall not forget um, the lives lost on January sixth, um, but also what we were talking about is the erosion of the trust in democratic institutions that many of these extremist narratives promote um, and the polarization in our society. But going back to your original question about the what we would call the militia violent extremists um, um, that showed up uh, at some of the state capitals, absolutely, that is assessed as a, as a, as a threat um, in this year and forward, that those types of groups would pose the biggest um, risk or threat to um, elected officials or government personnel and so forth. Meanwhile, if we talk about racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists such as white supremacists and neo-Nazis, they pose the most, um, the biggest threat to, to, to your average American um, conducting violent attacks against, you know, innocent citizens here in America
0: which was part of the motivation for a new book written by our next
1: guest. My name is Jonathan Greenblatt. I am the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, or ADL.
0: Greenblatt's new book on authoritarianism is called It Could Happen Here. As head of the ADL, which is focused on fighting anti-Semitism, he's concerned with hate wherever it lives. He also spoke with our Peter
3: Haskell. Put January 6th on a timeline. What led up to it, and what do you see coming after it?
1: Well, I think it's a good question, Peter. I think January 6th was the culmination of a series of events. I mean, frankly, there's a through line from Charlottesville to Pittsburgh to El Paso to uh, Capitol Hill. The reality is, is that we've seen an intensification of extremism in several different respects in recent years number one you had the former president who literally invited extremists into the political process in the way we had never seen before from only finding quote-unquote fine people among the neo-nazis who marched in charlottesville and murdered a woman to you know asking the proud voice to stand back and stand by rather than condemn them on national television He literally gave them a kind of license. I think number two, extremists feel particularly emboldened in this moment, and we know that because the ADL is the oldest anti-hate organization in the world. We've been tracking extremists in this country literally for a 100-plus years, and we know they feel emboldened because that's exactly what they are saying. Maybe not out on their Facebook pages or in their Twitter feeds, But in their private chat rooms that we monitor, on the dark web, they're saying we feel emboldened. And they're now trying to engage in things like school board debates about uh, masking or engage online about conspiracies around vaccinations. I mean, it's ugly and unfortunate, which then gets to number three. You now have the social media has become so ubiquitous. It's like intravenously feeding misinformation into the national bloodstream. And that misinformation, I should say, Peter, affects people on both sides of the aisle. I don't think people who are Democrats or liberals should imagine for a moment that they're somehow exempt from ignorance or intolerance. The challenge we have today comes from both sides, and it's up to us to engage and push back if we want to preserve
3: this democracy. You've written a book, It Could Have Happened Here. What's the it, what could have happened here? Well,
1: I think for me, the it, the unthinkable, is drawn directly from you know my background as an American Jew. I'm the grandson of a Jewish uh, ho- refugee, a Holocaust survivor from Germany, who when he was a young man, never could have imagined that the only country he had ever known and that he loved so much would one day turn on him, regard him as an enemy of the state, destroy everything that he ever loved, and slaughter his entire family and friends. And on the husband of a political refugee from Iran, a Jewish woman who heard her family trace their lineage for thousands of years to Iran, and then it was after the Islamic Revolution that they suddenly found that the only country they had ever known turned on them. Regarded them as enemies of the state, forced them to flee for their lives, and come here to America. So I say this because my own background tells me that the unthinkable, the it, is the is the disintegration of the social fabric. It is the dissolution of society and the kind of vigilantism and violence that we saw on display on January the sixth. I'm afraid that could move from being the exception to becoming the norm. If again, we don't roll up our sleeves and get ready to engage in a constructive way in preserving uh, the principles that have always made this country great.
3: The way you describe it, it sounds like almost there's a, uh, this uh, extremist wave that's washing over us. How, how do we stop that?
1: Well, that's literally Peter why I wrote the book. Because I do think you could say this is a kind of, you know, a tsunami of toxicity that is rolling over the country. And I think there's several things that we need to do. And the book includes strategies and tactics and tips for what to do when hate happens in the workplace, or in the classroom, or in a house of worship, or literally, you know, in in the political arena. So number one, I think we need to call out hate when it happens. We need to interrupt intolerance, particularly when it originates from our side of the political aisle. Again, I don't think either end of the spectrum is exempt from intolerance. I think number two, we need to cancel, cancel culture. We need to lose the litmus test. We need to recognize that everyone has the opportunity to be redeemed. I mean, we're all human, we're all fallible, we all make mistakes. The question is what do we do and how do we learn from them? So i think you've got to give people the opportunity to redeem themselves not reject them out of hand and then third and finally i think we've got to engage we've got to engage and participate in this democracy we have to show up at those school board meetings not to scream but to employ facts and to push back on the biggest who try to bully us we've got to get involved in local elections we've got to vote out the people who suppress our voting rights and demand that they do things like, for example, hold social media accountable, not allow the most interpret voices to be amplified, not allow slander to be spread, not allow the companies like Facebook to have no accountability, and instead demand that they put people over profits. So I think if we engage in our democracy, if we cancel cancel culture if we call out hate when it happens these are some of the first steps i think to defending this democracy and preserving this this incredible experiment that is america
3: there have been some surveys released in the past week or so and they're consistent roughly one in three americans say violence against the government can be justified It was 10% 20 years ago. What does this tell you, and what kind of concerns do you have?
1: Well, I think in many ways it reflects kind of the coarsening of the public conversation. It reflects the embrace of conspiracy theories that people think somehow the government is plotting against them. And it reflects the broader sort of intemperance that seems so common today. I mean, think about here in New York. The ADL, which has been tracking extremists, as I said, for decades and decades, we saw more than 600 extremist activities in the Empire State in 2020, half of which were white supremacist propaganda, saying things like, the government is plotting against you, right? By the way, we saw a rise in hate crimes. We saw 460 hate crimes in New York, uh, a large majority of which were anti-Semitic, so I think we're in a moment where people feel like they've been pushed to the edge, where vigilantism and violence has been validated when the former president tells people to, quote-unquote, liberate Michigan, or tells the mob who broke into the Capitol building, tried to kidnap and kill elected officials that he, quote-unquote, loves them. That's a real dilemma, and we need responsible officials on the right and the left. Republicans and Democrats, to call out such, you know, illiberalism. It's frightening for all of us when people in positions of authority are encouraging this extremism, and it's got to stop.
3: Do you think his country could seriously become an autocracy?
1: Well, look, I believe America is the greatest democracy the world has ever known. I believe that this country has demonstrated extraordinary resilience after civil unrest, after economic depressions, after world wars, and our democracy has always come through. But democracy is a contact sport. It requires us to get involved. You can't watch it from the cheap seats and just expect it will always work. There is no, you know, I believe, preordained uh, natural law that says that this democracy will persist forever if we don't participate in it. So, can it slide into absolute authoritarianism? Look, as a Jew, I know that anything is possible. As an American, I hope desperately that we will come through this moment because the suppression of the vote, laws that would, again, empower vigilantes, this, 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 this embrace of cancel culture that shuts people off if they commit any transgression these are all scary trends that we need to stop before they you know they they spread any further
3: you know what I'm curious about we've got domestic terrorism we've got anti-semitism is there a link or is it just an overlap um,
1: well I think look terrorism you know the act of using violence to engender fear among the population in many ways anti-semitism is a kind of terrorism always has been right? people who spread stereotypes and do things like vandalize synagogues or attack jewish people in broad daylight in brooklyn has happened again this weekend these aren't just crimes against an individual it's intended often to intimidate a whole community that is a kind of terrorism but let's also recognize that you know, the, the terrorists who flew the planes into the buildings here in this, you know, fair city on 9-11, or the individuals who murdered people in, in uh, El Paso, 20 some Latino people, or who shot up the, the black church in Charleston. Those were also acts of domestic terror that weren't targeting toward Jews. I think we find, unfortunately, that anti-Semitism is at the beating heart of the white, of white supremacy, that those white nationalists who talk about, you know, who are racist and anti-Muslim and xenophobic, they often believe there's some anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that they're trying to fight. So it can be hard to disentangle those two things.
3: Jonathan, fascinating stuff. I appreciate it very much.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. I appreciate the thoughtful questions.
0: 880 In Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Scheldt. Find us wherever you get your podcast audio. Just search for 880 In Depth and subscribe so you don't miss a week and listen on your time on demand. Thank you for listening and please be safe.